Well, 2024, I don't need to tell you, is an election year. I've talked with a lot of pastors and elders who are pretty nervous about it, I will say. And if you have not already succumbed, you will probably be tempted to get worked up about it. And this morning, it's my hope that I can give you an alternative to getting fired up in these next nine months. I'm sure in the next little while you will hear rhetoric that talks about culture wars. This is not new. Rome brought the culture wars to Jerusalem. I imagine the Jerusalem newspapers would say, this is an existential crisis. And actually it was. Because within a generation of Jesus, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And a few centuries after that, Rome itself collapsed. For both sides of the culture war, it was an existential crisis. In other words, if you pull out far enough, and you get enough perspective, it won't really matter which side of the culture war you were on because both sides end up in failure. This morning, I want you to hear from the loser of the culture war. Today, I want you to listen to Jesus. I want you to watch Jesus in action as he uh, interacts with his political enemies. And I want you to notice in particular just how anxious Jesus is. I want you to notice just how uptight he appears. Because really, when the stakes could not have been higher... He didn't panic, and he didn't worry, and he didn't wring his hands, and he didn't watch TV. But I want you to see how Jesus engaged political life. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. I'll begin reading in verse 15. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. Matthew is the first, of course, the first gospel in the New Testament. That's the record of Jesus' life. And what we're about to read comes at the heels of uh, several stories in which Jesus um, reinforced the prospect that the Jewish leaders were not submitting to his authority. They questioned him and said, uh, where do you get your authority? And he put the question back on them and then told stories that... uh, indicted them and their lack of submission to God's authority. And so after that, then they try another approach, and here's what we have in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent him, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. 
and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And so I said that I wanted you to find another way through so you don't have to panic, you don't have to worry, you don't have to fear this coming election season. And I just want to say that Jesus modeled a way for Christians to disentangle from political traps. Jesus assumed that we would submit to Caesar, but then said submission to God is what really proves to be subversive. In a world that is political, we long for a king who will lead us differently than the kings of this earth. And so if this parable like, or this uh, encounter like the previous parables is uh, expounding on the theme of authority, you can hardly talk about authority without somehow bringing government into it. And the good news is Jesus didn't have to do that because somebody brought that question to him. And so they ask him in verse 15, or in verse 15 it tells us they plotted to entangle him, and then they ask him about paying taxes. So I mentioned that there was this uh, encounter about authority and then three stories. It's important to know that Jesus owned them in those three stories. He had them on their heels. He had them all but crying as he told stories where they recognized themselves that they were the stars of those stories and it was not good for them. And so we see at the beginning of verse 15, we see the Pharisees coming back, huddling up, and regrouping. They're trying to figure out how are they going to trap Jesus in his words. Now when I say trap somebody in their words, I read this normally like it's a joke. They're playing a joke on Jesus. Like school kids might play a joke on a teacher in school, maybe put a toad in her desk or something like that. And... That's not at all what's happening here. This is not that kind of a prank. They are really plotting to kill Jesus. Their aim is to destroy him. The best way they can think of is this plan they have right now. So it says that the Pharisees recruited their disciples They were going to send disciples of the Pharisees to Jesus. I don't know if they didn't want to do the dirty work themselves or why they sent their disciples, but these guys were apparently apprentices. 
who were learning, of all things, to be Pharisees. Um, And so they sent the disciples of the Pharisees, along with, it says, the Herodians. So there are a group of Pharisees and there is a group of Herodians. Now, we don't know anything uh, about the Herodians that we don't figure out from their name. So if you look at their name and you chop the last four letters off, you get the name Herod, don't you? Well, Herod was the, the ruler of the, um, the province in which Jesus grew up. He was a Roman-placed governor over Galilee. And so we don't know much about the Herodians, but we can figure it out that they get their name from their political allegiance to Herod. So they were, um, they were uh, definitely supporters of Herod. And to be supporters of Herod meant that they were supporters of Rome. Now it is curious that the Pharisees would partner with them because the Pharisees were not supporters of Rome. Uh, The Pharisees uh, hated Rome and would have done anything they could to get out from under the rule of Rome. And so they send their disciples who believe they want to be out from under Rome along with the Herodians who say, no, Rome is good, and they go to Jesus. So why do you suppose they recruited the Herodians to accompany their disciples and ask Jesus this question? It was clearly a political maneuver, completely. To have Roman supporters there as witnesses in the presence of Jesus when Jesus said, no, you don't need to pay taxes, they'd have been the perfect witness. They'd have had the trap and it would have sprung and the witnesses were there. They could condemn Jesus and they'd have exactly what they need. Kaylin Chess in her book, The Ballot in the Bible, notes this. She says, these two surprising groups come together in order to trick Jesus by asking him, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The central question puts Jesus in a bind. If he says yes, he angers Rome's critics and many in Judea will condemn him. If he says no, he's, open to re- to re- he's in open rebellion of Rome and may be charged with sedition. So either way, they have set up now this perfect trap for Jesus. But they're not done. The trap is set, but they're not sure it's baited correctly. They're not sure it has enough lubricant so that it snaps quickly to catch him. So they begin with the flattery. They really have to appreciate the flattery. Because they say, you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. Is that, is that right? Are they right about that? Jesus, yeah, you can say yes. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His whole, I mean, Jesus claimed to be true. And of course, to treat, teach the way of God truthfully. And so they come to Jesus and say, oh, you're true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. They're probably telling Jesus what they think he wants to hear. But, they 100% do not believe it. They're simply being manipulative. Because this is part of their plan to get him to state 
an answer that would get him into trouble. Because in effect, they're, they're not saying, oh, I completely believe you, Jesus. Trust me, they're not saying that. They're saying, Jesus, <laughs> you know you can't lie to us. You're true. When you teach the way of God truth, you know you can't lie. So they're essentially, they're essentially holding him up saying, you've got to tell us the truth here. Then it goes on thicker. Because then they say, and you're not worried about anyone. You don't worry what anyone says. Literally, you don't see the face of man. You're not swayed by appearances. And so those two phrases both combine to remind Jesus that he can't tell them what they want to hear. They would remind Jesus that whether it's Caesar or Herod, high priests or Pharisees, he can't answer based on what he thinks they want to hear. And so they're attempting to isolate Jesus on an island. And once they think they've got him there, they finally ask the question, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, just to be clear, it is not only lawful, it was required by Roman law to pay this tax. They must pay the tax. There's no question about whether it's lawful according to Rome, but they're not asking that. They're asking, is it lawful according to Jewish law? What do you think the Jewish law would say about paying taxes to Rome? That is a very different question. Because that question is more like this. Does God want us to support the evil done by the Roman Empire with our taxes? That's really the question. Does God want us to give our money so that Rome can continue to do evil? Jesus, what do you think? Well, let me ask you, what do you think? It's not a very easy question, is it? If you were asked this, what would you say? I'm guessing that almost every one of us would stumble into the trap that they set for Jesus. In fact, I think most of the evangelical churches in America would fall into this trap because it's a good trap. It's really a good trap. Look at verse 18. How does Jesus respond? He sees a trap coming. It doesn't surprise him. And he says, it says, but, verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? I love that. I love that. How long? How long did they stump Jesus? They didn't stump him at all, did they? He's like on it. Not for a second. 
Why are you trying to test me? Come on. And then I think, you know, Jesus could have held back there. And, and this is the thing that I'm noticing, and I hope you notice, in that we're in the last week of Jesus' life, and Jesus could have been, um, well, what we would say politically correct, couldn't he? He could have dialed it back and been nicer. But he didn't have that concern. Instead, he said, why are you trying to test me, you hypocrites? He could have left the hypocrite part out. That might have helped. But the reality is that's what they were. They were acting a part in hope of trapping Jesus. And so what Jesus does is uh, really brilliant. He, he asked them to produce a coin, the coin by which they would pay this tax. And in the, it's a great move because the coin itself goes against the religious sensibilities of the Pharisees. They, they believe they shouldn't even have the coin in their pocket because it has an image on it. And you know one of, uh, one of the big ten, right, is don't have, make an image. But it's an image of Caesar. It's even worse. One commentator describes the coin this way. He says, Such coins bore an image of the emperor's head along with an offensive inscription. The inscription reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That's on one side. That's heads, right? Tails says... Pontifex Maximus, which Jesus would have understood as high priest on the other side. So heads, it's the divine Augustus. Tails, it's the high priest. You pick. Not the coin you want them flipping in Super Bowl, I'll just say. And so the Pharisees didn't, didn't like that coin. They didn't want to have it, but... Mysteriously, they were able to produce one anyway. But the problem with this coin is that it represented the political and religious problem by which they thought they trapped Jesus because the um, religion and the state were fused together. Um, the cult of the gods and the power of the rulers were entwined. From the very beginning of the Roman Empire, the, the, the story goes that the first king of Rome made a bargain with Jupiter, the king of the gods, that, that he would supply sacrifices to the gods if Jupiter would give strength to his armies. And he did, and he conquered, and from then forward, there was this merging of civic life and religious life, that the, the cult of the gods meant that the centerpiece of the gods on earth was the uh, emperor. And so that's why it talked about the divine Augustus. The paganism in the Roman Empire insisted that the unity, uh, what we would consider unity, between civil and religious obligations... So the coin could be both religious and civil at the same time. And in fact, if you, if you were to survey the history of the early church, I would say probably the number one issue that they faced relentlessly 
was uh, the cult of emperor worship. They accused Christians of being atheists, not because they didn't believe in a God, but because they didn't believe Caesar was God. In fact, that was one of the defining marks of Christianity, is that to claim that Jesus is king is to say that Caesar is not king. So really, when Jesus surfaces this coin, it becomes the centerpiece of the whole story. This image on the coin is the focus from here forward. If you can look at the coin and see an image, you have an obligation to the one whose image is stamped on the coin. Everyone knew. I mean, it was the Roman Empire after all. Everyone knew that the image on the coin demanded uncompromising obedience. And Jesus asks, whose image is this? How did it help Jesus, after all, to produce the coin and show them the image? How did it help? Well, verse 21, we're going to get to the punchline here uh, now. Verse 21, they said it's Caesar's image. They look at the coin, and just like you would look at a quarter and say it's George Washington, they would say Caesar. Then Jesus said, it's easy. This is easy. Give it back to Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's that easy. Return to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's not that hard. The image is right there to remind you. On the one hand, it's easy. On the other hand, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that the Jews would subjugate themselves to the evil Roman Empire. Yet, Jesus says, return to Caesar what's Caesar's. Which means that in saying that, Jesus assumes Caesar's existence, his legitimacy, and his rights. He assumes that there is a God-given place for Caesar. Which should, should make your mind like twitch a little bit or something. Because while we have pagan elements in our world and in our government, they had more. Did they have slavery? Yes. Were there abortions? Yes. Was there injustice? Yes. Did they have a murderous military? Yes. Was homosexuality rampant? Yes. Were there obvious and evil perversions of justice? Yes. Did they suppress other nations? Well, like they were doing to Israel? Yes. Yet Jesus said, pay your taxes. Jesus said, submit to Rome. Jesus himself submitted to Rome, didn't he? Later this week in his life, he was killed by Rome because he submitted to the Roman cross. So clearly, 
you could say it was not Jesus' goal to undermine Caesar's legitimacy. He was not trying to unseat Caesar. Yet, we have Christians who spend their time and energy bellyaching, inciting rebellion, and acting as if the world is about to come to an end. And I have to say, Jesus comes nowhere close to that. Jesus is not in the same neighborhood as someone who would condemn Rome. He does not come anywhere close to suggesting that his followers should somehow resist Rome. Nor does he give any indication that they should love Rome. It's very important that you get both of those. He doesn't argue like a philosopher might have that the taxes will really benefit you after all. Look at the roads. Look at the running water. Experience the peace. I didn't say that. The other thing he doesn't say is that Jesus has no designs to hold Rome accountable. In fact, that's an idea he flatly rejects later that week. He talks to Pilate. He says, you have no authority except what's given to you heaven. And um, then he says, I could send angels, legions, to set me free, and I don't. He could have held Rome accountable for sure. And he chose not to. Rather, he chose a simple route, didn't he? Pay your taxes. Now, he could have stopped there. But he didn't. Jesus never stops at good stopping points, it seems to me. He's always going to go one step farther and get himself into trouble. And he does. He says, return to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and return to God the things that are God's. Now by saying that, um, he could have said, look in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Whose image is there? And certainly every good Jew would have said, God's image is there. You belong to Him. That's what Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 starts, starts out the Bible. And this is before there ever was a Jewish community. God is saying all of mankind, all of humankind is in our image. Listen to what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Return to God the things that are God's. The things that have God's image on it, return to him. Everybody owes allegiance to God. By adding the second half, there is a sense in which the legitimacy of Caesar is there because of God. By virtue of being human beings, they owe God their whole selves. They belong to God. 
And this applies to the non-religious Rhodians as much as it does the ultra-religious Pharisees. So Jesus said, return to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And he leaps out of the tax question. If he had stayed in the tax conversation, it would have been for him to fall in the trap. If he had stopped where he could have stopped, returned to Caesar what Caesar's, period, he'd have been in the trap. To play the pro-Caesar or the anti-Caesar game is to ultimately misrepresent God and to fall into the trap. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't play that game, did he? He changed the game. They were playing checkers on a checkerboard that asked, are you red against Caesar or black for Caesar? Maybe your checkerboard has blue and red. But they're asking, are you for Caesar or against Caesar? As though those are the only questions. And they invited Jesus to play checkers with them. And what Jesus did with this last phrase is that Jesus played chess on their checkerboard. Let me say this to you. The moves available to you on the checkerboard are not the right moves. If you play checkers like everyone wants you to play checkers, like your news stations tell you how to play checkers, you'll be playing the wrong game. And after all, we're looking ahead to November to a repeat election. And you may be wondering what moves are the best. And let me just say, if your only move is to vote for Trump or to vote for Biden, you're going to be playing the wrong game. That's the trap they tried to use on Jesus. They tried to use it on Jesus, and now it's loaded and ready to spring on you. Because for Jesus, clearly the punchline was return, render to God the things that are God's. His main issue was the kingdom of God, and it is for us also. Because politics for Jesus rests in the second half of his answer, not the first. It's the last part of his answer. That's the only way that you can escape the trap and the misery of the upcoming political season. After all, you need to recognize here in this text, Jesus had legitimate enemies. They were setting this trap so they could take his life. Those are real enemies. Ones that kill you are real enemies. But so many of us have been fed stories that we have enemies that are in a different political party than us. And I think that 
if our approach to our supposed enemies is not as measured and as wise as the response Jesus made to his real enemies here, we're already in the trap. We're already in the trap. If you do not have a firm commitment to the second half of Jesus' answer here, you can just listen for the sound of the trap closing around you. So really, if you are going to commit yourself to the second half of Jesus' answer here, you're going to ask questions like this. You're going to ask questions about how do I represent the one in whose image I am made with every time I open my mouth about political things, with every Facebook post, with everything I do. How am I going to filter every opinion, every word, every vote, every family conversation about Caesar through this grid of accountability to God and image-bearing? I mean, I, I marvel, like, like I was a Pharisee or like I was a Herodian, at the answer of Jesus. But I do want to say, we cannot. If Jesus was unwilling to play the checker game, we have, we have to play a different game too. We can't co-opt the church into an organization that serves Caesar or into one that rebels against Caesar. We must engage with Caesar so that we keep Caesar in his place. And then, we need to get about the business of living for the kingdom of heaven. Patrick Schreiner in his book, The Political Gospel, says this, In the shadow of Rome, their most subversive act was not to oppose Rome, but to deny its principal significance. Let me say that again. I want you to get it. In the shadow of Rome, their most subversive act was not to oppose Rome, but to deny its principal significance. Jesus didn't seek to unseat Caesar. He willingly went to a Roman cross. Jesus was asked the most politically charged question of the day where the Jews should be complicit with Rome by paying taxes to Caesar. And he didn't respond by flying off the rail at their abuse of power. He also didn't speak in a soft, hushed voice, fearing their authority. Instead, he subverted their power, not by calling for a boycott, but by shrugging. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He goes on to say, we need to learn from this tactic. We are partially complicit in granting too much power to current governmental systems by our feverish responses. 
by manically and incessantly speaking of them, we hand to them the scepter. And so, I want the words of Jesus to settle on you. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's. And if I leave it there, you might be filled with all kinds of, but, but what about kinds of questions, right? And there probably are a lot of what about kinds of questions that remain to be answered. But this is a good place to leave it. It's where Jesus leaves it, after all. But think about it. If we leave it there, if we leave it there, rendering to God the things that are God's, what's going to happen? You know what? That's a re- it's a really good place to leave things there. The last uh, few weeks, I've been using the C42 Endeavor uh, prayer guide in my daily time with the Lord, and I commend it to all of you. But this is just what I got out of it this morning. Not all the other days, just this morning. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. What are you going to worry about? What are you going to worry about? If you render to Caesar what Caesar's like Jesus said, but to God what's God? You're going to be in a very good place because his kingdom rules over all. Or Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6, also from this morning. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? You are going to be able to trust the Lord this election season, period. Render unto God the things that are God's. I mentioned in the beginning that Jesus was the loser in the culture war. And I suppose that's one way you could look at it. Because in spite of Jesus' answer here, they still brought the charge. Can you believe they still brought the charge? That's how desperate they were. Luke, uh, in his account in chapter 23, he says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, listen to what they say, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Can you believe it? He said just the opposite. And they're still accusing him of forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He can't win. What's more than that, though, is that it was his submission to Rome that put him on the cross. But was he the loser? Was he really the loser? If your focus and energy is put on the second part of Jesus' answer, will you be the loser? Will you end up regretting it? I just want to say, 
We don't really remember the Caesars, do we? You might be able to name two or three. Herod, he only gets bad press 2,000 years later. And despite what TikTok says, I don't think people think about the Roman Empire much at all. Yet, every week, the rich and the poor, the oppressed and the free, male and female, young and old, gather to remember Jesus. Somehow, somehow his approach has been the most successful of all, hasn't it? Somehow, rendering unto God the things that are God has been the best possible approach. But think about it. After all, we long for a good and gracious king to rule. Because that's the good news. That's the good news that week after week we go back to. That Jesus, because of his submission, subverted the Roman Empire. In fact, he subverted all the empires. By his submission, he was crucified. And he rose again. And he now reigns seated at God's right hand. And one day he will return to make all wrongs right and everything sad untrue. And we are among those who gather week in and week out to remember our risen King. And today we're going to do it through communion or the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is just a small token by which we remind ourselves that there one day will be a great and glorious feast. This is a signpost that points us to the future. And just like this world and the politics of this world uh, are a poor foreshadowing of the great and glorious world that Jesus will one day bring in His kingly rule that will be perfect. So the bread and the cup that we're going to share in a moment are merely a paltry shadow of a great and glorious feast we're invited to, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It may be a paltry shadow, but it is nonetheless a reminder that yes, Jesus died, but yes, He rose again and He's returning. And so we'll remind ourselves that our political story is a different one. That it has a king who will rule and reign forever. And that our allegiance and our identity rests in him.